Topic of our Dhamma talk this late afternoon is the Buddhist perspective on climate change. And you might, at least some of you might wonder, what does this have to do with my mindfulness retreat? Well, let's wait and see whether there is any connection or not, and whether what we're doing here has anything to do with the climate or not. Now, the structure for today's Dhamma talk will be as follows. First, we shall focus on observe changes in the climate system. So this is looking at the global climate system. Then we will take our exploration a little bit closer to where we are here right now, namely to the northeast of North America and or northeast of the US. And then we shall also take a closer look at some quite or a different place quite far from here uh, namely uh, Nepal and uh, how uh, climate change uh, has uh, uh, that country and indicators for uh, climate change now having uh, done all of this, we shall take a closer uh, look at some of uh, the causes of climate change and then go on to discuss or highlight the more Buddhist perspective on climate change. And part of that will be an exploration of whether we have a responsibility or not. Is there an individual uh, as well as a universal responsibility, or is this certainly something that just doesn't concern us? Now, within this last year, um, two major reports were released. One, if I'm, if I remember correctly, was in September of last year, was Satna the uh, summary for policymakers as issued by you know, the IPCC, which stands for you know, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. That Satna summary is available on the internet and Satna elsewhere. And it provides certainly some very interesting reading on the topic. Now, we will not have the time to go into all those that many details. There are plenty of facts and certain figures, but we'll just keep it to the key findings of the IPCC. Key findings with regard to the atmosphere, with regard to the oceans of the globe, the cryosphere, which concerns Satna with the ice Satna masses, and Satna then main finding with regard to the sea level, carbon and other biogeochemical cycles is another area. And Satna then we shall also mention the detection attribute of climate change. So 
to whom can climate change be, to whom, to what setting can climate change be attributed? Now, the summary for policymakers of the IPCC report and this is the most uh, recent report, and please do know that hundreds, if not thousands, of fitness scientists in the field were involved in preparing this report. So the report is certainly saying warming of the climate system is unequivocal, and since the 1950s, many of the observed changes are unprecedented over decades to even millennia. The atmosphere and ocean have warmed, the amounts of snowed ice have diminished, sea level has risen, and the concentrations of greenhouse gases have increased. So that's certain, if you like, to uh, the overall summary concerning the major aspects of our globe. Although this summary, unfortunately, and some of you might have noticed this already, this summary is not talking about the impact on, or is not considering, especially wildlife, the impact on the species. Now, the more specific summary for the atmosphere then is certainly given as follows, namely, each of the last three decades has been successively warmer at near the Earth's surface than any preceding decade since 1850. In the Northern Hemisphere, 1983 to 2012 was likely the warmest 30-year period of the last 1400 years. And Sutner, this, this statement was given with a medium confidence. When it comes to you know, the specific conclusion or summary for you know, the oceans of Fertner this on this certain globe, the statement uh, is as follows: Ocean warming dominates the increase in energy stored in the climate system, accounting for more than 90% of energy accumulated between 1971 and 2010. There's a high confidence for this finding. It is virtually certain, the scientists say, that the upper ocean, namely extending from the surface all the way to 700 meters below the surface, warmed from 1971 until 2010, and is likely warmed, it likely warmed between the 1870s and 1971. Now, the cryosphere concerns itself with ice sheets. And the statement of the scientists here is is the following. Over the last two decades, the Greenland and Antarctic ice sheets have been losing mass. Glaciers have continued to shrink almost worldwide, and Arctic sea ice and northern hemisphere spring snow cover have continued to decrease in extent. There's a high confidence for uh, this finding. 
See, each of you know, the findings is attributed with a, well, a certain uh, level of confidence, sometimes extremely, con high, uh, extremely high confidence, sometimes high confidence, and certainly sometimes less certain confidence. Now, as for you know, the sea level, the rate of sea level rise since the mid-19th century has been larger than the mean rate during the previous two millennia. There's a high confidence for this statement. Over the period 1901 until 2010, global sea level rose by 0.19 meters, so almost 20 centimeters. Now, this we will soon see has an impact on certain populations, namely coastal populations. There you go. So, people living in coastal areas are likely to get wet feet. And maybe more than this. Now, the main finding for, with regard to carbon and other biogeochemical cycles is stated in the following words. The atmospheric concentrations of carbon dioxide, so CO2, methane and nitrous oxide have increased to levels unprecedented in at least the last, can you believe this, 800,000 years. Carbon dioxide concentrations have increased by 40% since pre-industrial times, primarily from fossil fuel emissions and secondarily from net land use change emissions. The ocean has absorbed about 30% of the emitted anthropogenic carbon dioxide, causing ocean acidification. Now, until before this IPCC report was certainly published, there was a heated debate in the scientific community as to whether climate change is happening at all. Maybe it's just an imagination. And then, secondly, what to attribute this climate change to? And certainly some stating that it had nothing to do with certain human activities. Now, the most recent IPCC report from 2013 came up with a really clear statement. It says, human influence, so this is detection and attribution of climate change, human influence has been detected in warming of the atmosphere and the ocean, in changes in the global water cycle, in reductions in snow and ice, in global mean sea level rise, and in changes in some climate extremes. This evidence for human influence has grown since the earlier assessment report, namely number four. And if I'm not mistaken, that was from 2007. But please, this is not 100%. And earlier on, the level of confidence wasn't that great yet. However, with the 2013 report, there was no, hardly any room left for doubt. The report states this evidence, or 
it is extremely likely, which means 95 to 100% likely that human influence has been the dominant cause of the observed warming since the mid-20th century. Now, all of us happen to be humans, which nearly means it concerns us greatly. Now, a number of certain countries, when proceeding or tackling climate change issues, then initiated what certainly is called a so-called climate change assessment. And what these assessments certainly do is certainly to look at the respective country and certainly the observed changes within that country and then making predictions of what might happen next. Now, not certain too long ago, the U.S. National Climate Assessment was published and it, for this certain report too, many hundreds of fitness scientists were involved in putting this report together. Now, that United States National Climate Assessment was, was ordered by the government itself. This National Climate Assessment is interesting because it clearly states the assessment not only for the country as a whole, but also for various geographic regions, one of them being the Northeast. Another would be the, um, the Northwest, and then the Southwest, etc. Now, since we're here in Barrie, Massachusetts, as part of the Northeast, let us just for the sake of general knowledge take a closer look what this climate assessment is finding with regard to impact of climate change. So the report states heat waves, coastal flooding, and river flooding will pose a growing challenge to the region's environmental, social, and economic systems. This will increase the vulnerability of the region's residents, especially its most disadvantaged populations. Infrastructure will be increasingly compromised by climate-related hazards. So infrastructure such as certain roads, bridges, certain buildings, airports, seaports, including sea level rise, coastal flooding, and intense precipitation events. Agriculture, fisheries, and ecosystems will be increasingly compromised over the next century by climate change impacts. Farmers can explore new crop options, but these adaptations are not cost or risk-free. Moreover, adaptive capacity, which varies throughout the region, could be overwhelmed by changing climate while a majority of states and, certain, and a rapidly growing number of municipalities have begun to incorporate the risk of climate change into their planning activities, 
implementation of adaptation measures is still at early stages. So the reference Satna for this is Satna, the, uh, the website of fertnanglobalchange.gov. Now, in the case of Fertin Nepal, which certainly is a small landlocked certain country in Asia, placed right between two superpowers, namely China to the north and India to the south. There you go. And so this country, even though it is contributing less than 0.01% of global carbon emissions, there is little that Nepal can do to decrease greenhouse gases. Now, what has been noticed over the years in Nepal is a decreasing amount of snow on Mount Everest caused by rising temperatures. Nepal's glaciers have, and Nepal is covering a substantial part of the Himalayas, especially that part where eight of the highest peaks are located. So Nepal's glaciers have retreated by 21% over the past 30 years and more to come in the near future. Now this itself has some serious certain consequences, namely the number of glacial lakes at high altitude is increasing you know, with between 20 and 26 in Nepal and if they burst what will happen? There will be major flooding, namely in you know, the mountain areas. So the glacial melt is increasing as temperatures rise and will lead to increased summer flows in some river systems for a few decades, followed by a reduction in flows as suddenly the glaciers disappear. Scientists say the effects of climate change could be devastating as certain Himalayas, the Himalayas provide food and certain energy for approximately 1.3 billion people living in downstream river basins. Now, it is certain this last aspect that is being increasingly highlighted by scientists, for instance, scientists from ECMOD, the International Center for Coordinate for Integrated Mountain Development and a Regional Scientific Institute. So, actually, what is happening is that black carbon and and then yeah, mostly black carbon is being pushed towards the Himalayas. So they're well-known channels for this black carbon that is suddenly being emitted by millions and millions of households cooking with fuel such as suddenly firewood the black carbon haze or so-called atmospheric brown cloud that also is owing to millions of vehicles, many of them not properly maintained. Furthermore, 
ten of thousand brick kilns are contributing you know, to you know, the black carbon pollution as well as a number of foot heavy industries. All of that, or a lot of that atmospheric brown cloud, so it's a haze, brown haze, gets moved towards the Himalayas and suddenly has a major impact on, on the air quality. More than this, air quality plus the glaciers. So black carbon has a tendency to absorb sunlight and so, yeah, then it warms up but, yeah, the atmosphere when mm, the layers of the atmosphere that are in which the black carbon is uh, predominant, so yeah, where you have your atmospheric brown cloud, when you know, those layers touch you know, the glaciers, touch you know, the snow, or come in contact uh, you know, with you know, the snow, with the glaciers, and then it leads to an increased melting of those sudden glaciers. Plus, when the black carbon particles settle on the glaciers, well, the color black absorbs the sun rays, and that then too contributes to a warming up of the glaciers and a melting. So within the next certain couple of decades, we can the scientists expect an increase in melt certain flow, melt water from from the glaciers. However, once certain the glaciers have greatly subsided, uh, or what's the word for this? No, no, not yet have. Yeah, well, subs huh? receded. receded. There we are. Now, receded, and then mm, there is no more supply, no more water supply for the major you know, rivers in in the northern part of Fatna, the Indian subcontinent. So a greatly decreased inflow of Fatna water for the Ganges River, for the Brahmaputra, for the Indus River, for the Salween and other major rivers. So when those major rivers in their respective river basins carry less water, there will be less water available for for agriculture, and this will have an impact on the population or not? Obviously, it will. And Satna then can have even further consequences, further consequences in terms of food security, etc. So there are some really, really major consequences to be expected from climate change. Now, are those changes always the same in every country, in every place? They're not. So there are huge differences between the impacts of climate change, let's say, here in the northeast of the United States, and certainly the impact of climate change on the southwest of this country. And again, the impact on a country like Nepal is certainly quite certainly different. Now, Various causes have been mentioned for climate change, natural causes, for instance, such as the changes in the Earth's orbit and the Earth moving closer to the Sun, or changes in solar activity, volcanic eruptions. And then, as another major source, and IPCC has certainly concluded, well, there is certain human activity. So, anthropogenic cause. And so, these then have greatly contributed to the changes in Earth's sudden climate. Now, many 
these sudden changes, major changes, have occurred since the industrial era began. And that the industrial era began with which invention? With which invention? Steam engine, there you go. The invention of the steam engine, the combustion engine. So at the time it was heralded as a big innovation and it has brought many changes, has brought, well, much more power, also much more comfort. But suddenly in the long run, the side effects of this invention have been disastrous. So among the things that have contributed, greatly contributed to climate change, we have the greenhouse gases among those carbon dioxide being the first one, methane, the next one, nitrous oxide, yet another one. Water vapor has also been mentioned. And the sources of carbon-2 emissions are the fossil, is fossil fuel burning included. Certainly here we also have cement manufacturing and then land use. By land use changes is meant turning, let's say, a tropical forest or an area that is covered by dense tropical forest into an agricultural area. So burning down parts of the tropical forest and then starting agriculture. Now, this much in terms of observed certain changes and certain then major sources that that have caused certain climate change. Now, let us take a look at certain the Buddhist perspective on climate change. Now, we let us start with some very fundamental aspect, namely humanity's relationship to nature or humanity's place in nature. You will surely know that suddenly there are certain religious systems that have proposed humans place in nature to be what? or role with regard to nature to be what? Domination. Domination. There you go. Domination of nature, conquering nature. Conquered nature. Now, the Buddhist perspective, or, or let's take you know, the Native American Indian perspective on this. Would Native Americans certainly share you know, this idea of conquering nature, domination of nature? Not at all. Well, with the Buddhist teachings, it's about the same thing. Peter Harvey, a professor of Buddhism originally from the UK, has stated the following in his book, Introduction to Buddhist Ethics, a book that I can highly recommend. Given all that has been said so far in his certain chapter on our relationship to nature, he says, it is clear that the Buddhist ideal for humanity's relationship with animals plants, and the landscape is one of, and please note, harmonious cooperation. The Buddha's teachings emphasizes a disciplining and overcoming of the negativities within the conditioned nature of the human heart. What do we do here? 
during this retreat. We meditate and we try to overcome those negativities within the human heart. Such an approach goes hand in hand with a friendly attitude to the environment. This can be seen in a Zen scholar's Satna statement, namely D.T. Suzuki's Satna statement, making a good friend of a climbed mountain rather than of conquering it. So our role as humans is not to conquer and subjugate certainly the planet Earth, but rather to live in harmony with it. Now, an aspect that that hardly gets highlighted around Satna, this Satna discussion of Satna climate change and Satna, the impact of humans on you know, the environment is the ethical aspect of our actions. So our actions will have direct impact on the environment. So if Satna, we as an individual or as part of a corporation or as let's say a local society if our carbon footprint is really high well then there will clearly be an impact on the atmosphere and with this on the environment now this however is, the Buddha says, not the only thing to consider. There is the so-called Adamika Sutta from in the Anguttara Nikaya, namely volume 2, section 74 to 76. And that discourse is structured in a, in a very in a simple way. Namely, it says, if the king of a country is unrighteous, king or ruler, governor of a country is unrighteous, then the vassals of that country will also become unrighteous. When the vassals of that country are unrighteous, then the towns and country folks will also become unrighteous. And then it goes on like this. Because certain human beings become unrighteous, the sun and moon will be off course, and then the constellations and stars will be off course, day and night will be of course, winds will be of course, and uh, uh, even the deity and then the deities will become upset. And when the deities, the discourse says, become upset, then the rains will not be regular anymore. And this certainly has an impact on the crops, of course, which then has with little rain falling, you know, there would be poor crops, and certainly then uh, the, you know, the human beings who have to you know, make due with certain poor crops will end up being weak and certain short-lived people. Then the discourse goes on that Adamika Sutta goes on to state just the opposite. If the ruler of a country is righteous, then the vassals and Brahmins of that country become righteous. If they are righteous, then the towns and the town and certain country folks will also become righteous, and then the same uh, sequence again. And at the end, we will have the crops. Satna will be abundant, and Satna the people will be strong, healthy, and Satna enjoy a long life. So, 
what we have here is an ethical consideration. An ethical consideration in the context of Fatna, our environment. Hardly anyone is considering this these days. Now, there is, as Peter Harvey has suddenly stated, the pan-Indian value of ahimsa or non-injury, which then corresponds to the first of the five precepts, which um, exhorts us you know, to abstain from the onslaught on living beings, literally breathing beings, or breathe, yeah, breathing yeah, yeah, beings. Now, that's first precept usually is understood as being limited you know, just to you know, fellow you know, human beings, that we don't uh, you know, torment them, that we don't uh, take their you know, lives. But in the context of our climate change uh, you know, topic, it becomes obvious that this precept takes on a new dimension. And so, not to, or to abstain from onslaught of living beings includes even you know, the tiny ants and insects of whatever you know, form. It includes certain you know, the fish in you know, the oceans and certain you know, lakes, etc. It includes the birds in you know, the sky, etc. Now, if because of our the way of living on this planet and suddenly causing much carbon dioxide emissions, if because of this the you know, the CO two concentrations in the atmosphere go really high, and that then leads to a warming of the global climate, and that then has an impact on many species and causing certain regions to become so hot that certain species just can't survive anymore, then, uh, then what? Are we observing that first precept or not? Not. So collectively, we are at fault. Now, the non-harming of animals could be understood out of this first precept, but could also be understood coming from a different point of view. Namely, if X number, X number of millions of species gets extinct, or becomes extinct because of climate change and because of our human anthropogenic activities, then we will pile a huge amount of unwholesome karmic results onto our own heads. And that's collectively speaking. So ideally, we do not want to intentionally harm living beings. 
And the Buddha is Satna very clear about Satna. This is as, or as is Satna nicely expressed in Dhammapada verse 131, when he came across a group of children that were molesting, that was Satna molesting a snake with with sticks. And so the Buddha speaks Satna to them. Whoever seeking his or her own happiness harms with the rod or a stick, pleasure-loving beings gets no happiness hereafter. In other words, there will be karmic, uh, unwholesome karmic results, and certainly those will then contribute to our unhappiness. Now, in certain passages, the first precept is formulated in a very nice way. Namely, it says, one avoids killing of living beings and abstains from it. Without stick or sword, conscientious, full of sympathy, one is desirous of the welfare of all living beings. Full of sympathy sometimes also gets translated as trembling, with a trembling of the heart. One feels, uh, one empathizes uh, with certainness some um, living being that is under attack. Now, out of the four divine abodes, namely metakaruna, sympathetic joy, so mudita and equanimity, upeka, out of those, metta and karuna, loving kindness and certain compassion, play a major role when it comes to our relationship to the environment or to nature. Namely, as Peter Harvey states, as all sentient beings like happiness and dislike pain, however much their specific desires and sensitivities vary, the Karaniya Metta Sutta, so the discourse on loving kindness, speaks of radiating loving kindness to all all types of beings and not only to our pet dog or pet certain cat or uh, white mouse or whatever it might be. (laughs) Whatever living beings the Sutta Nipata says in verses 146-47 and this is really it goes to the heart. Whatever living beings there be feeble or strong tall, stout, or medium, short, small, or large, without exception, seen or unseen, those dwelling far or near, those who are born or those who are to be born, may all beings be happy. So there's an equal regard towards equal regard, a positive regard towards all living beings. Now, some researchers, Buddhist scholars and researchers, have pointed out that our current economic system is also at fault in this uh, or is at the root of Fatna, this global uh, eco-crisis. And Satna, that Satna indeed mm, seems to be the case. Now, our current global 
economic system is based on on greed and the greed leads certainly on to consumption and so you know there's marketing etc is artificially even creating an increase of consumption by creating artificial needs we think we need certain things if when maybe we don't certainly really need those now genuine happiness and well-being are they you know, truly do they truly arise certain you know, when we go to a big shopping center and certain pile you know, 50 items into our shopping cart and then pay for all of this and then take all of this stuff back home does this really make us truly happy no not really so true happiness is more likely to be found in a place like this when engaging in mindfulness practice and thus buddhist scholars have proposed that the uh, root cause, indeed, as Satna mentioned, lies in our greed, and Satna we would be well advised to reduce that Satna greed as much as we can. And especially when we meditate, we realize for ourselves over years that gradually we manage to get by on less and less items. So usually there's a simplification of lifestyle. And that certainly then means we need less. And certain with this, certain with this, there's less certain need you know, to purchase certain goods, and you know, there's less need you know, to exploit certain nature, and certain less need for uh, unnecessary uh, manufacturing. Now. Research in the field of Fertner climate change have Fertner proposed some, well, obvious Fertner solutions, such as they're calling for more research on the topic. And so each and every country has to do that. In the case of Nepal, the research is still in the, at the infant Fertner stage even though the country is facing major climate change uh, um, impacts. Now, the second solution that has been proposed is creating awareness for climate change issues. And this is where you know, we can come in. And then, thirdly, reduction of carbon emissions and other greenhouse gases. This also is an area where we can contribute. Plus, as number four, preparedness for extreme climate conditions. Now, from a worldly point of view of what could be done, as an individual contribution to uh, well lowering this or addressing climate change i the website of the united states environmental protection agency so epa contains wonderful information namely it contains mm, proposals what one could do at home Proposals, what one could, the measures one could certainly take at school, in the office, and on the road. So there's certain, I don't have the time to go into all those suggestions, but they're really good and worth looking, looking up and considering. 
Now, from a Buddhist certain point of, or from the point of view of the Buddhist certain teachings, a number of teachings apply. First of all, we have both a personal plus, a collective or universal responsibility towards the environment. And this out of the first precept of not injuring living beings, and then also out of compassion, namely karuna, or concern, which is a related term, deya and sympathy, anukampa in Pali. Dhammapada verse 129 has the following to say, all tremble at violence, all fear death. Comparing oneself with others, one should neither kill nor cause to kill. So it's not just our fellow human beings who fear death, but the ant that is crawling across your path, or maybe some spider in your room that prefers to live and not to get squashed. Now, did the Buddha mm, encourage animal sacrifices? Not at all. So he followed through with his uh, um, with his the intuitive wisdom he gained, and Satna that then meant a clear no to animal sacrifices as Satna were common at his time, and unfortunately they are still common on the sub-Indian continent. And instead, Satna the Buddha strongly recommended to perform different kind of sacrifices, namely by making offerings of vegetables, of fruit, milk, lighting a candle, or lighting some incense, Satna sticks. Now, why do you think the second precept of avoiding stealing could be important in you know, the context of our topic. So the first certain precept is evident, but what about the second one? We're stealing the future. We're stealing the future of our children. That's a really good point. And... Yes, and what's that? We're stealing resources from poorer countries. Yes, that's it. And um, in a book I found the following mm, statement in this regard, we have a responsibility not to rob the planet of its trees, water, fresh air, and minerals, in whatever form this might take place. So some big corporations feel they have a right to exploit the planet Earth in every possible way and to rob the planet of its resources. Now, if you, in this certain context, if you contrast this with the attitude of the Native American Indians towards certain nature, do you see any difference there? There's a huge difference. And there's a, a, a tremendous respect 
respect for nature and not even moving or when moving, let's say, a stone or a rock, then later on to put it back where it originally was. And to take from nature only what is absolutely necessary and not more. Now, in terms of uh, uh, cause and effect, action and certainly then uh, karmic uh, results, the third volume of the Anguja Nikaya, namely section 369 to 71, uh, states um, the case of some man of a a big fruit tree with several branches, and each branch was yielding bountiful fruits. So enough for the entire country. Yet one day, an ignorant man came along and helped himself of the fruits of that Satna tree as much as he could eat and went on to chop down that branch. Now, the tree spirit that was inhabiting the tree was very upset and Satna then decided, what is this? This I will stop and made the saw to it that the tree wouldn't bear fruit uh, any more. Then the king of that kingdom, Koravya, complained to the king of uh, uh, to Sakra, and Satna saying previously that certain tree was bearing lots of fruit, but now no more, so please Satna change this. And so then Sakra had an impact or, or talked to that tree spirit. And so no, oh, and part of Futna, the, the story was that eventually even a strong wind came and uprooted you know, the fruit tree, and so the tree spirit lost its Sutna uh, you know, So it was uh, strongly affected, so there's uh, the karmic results of its uh, uh, deed. Now, in comparison or in contrast to this, we have a discourse. You know, given in the first volume of the Samyutta Nikaya, section 33, entitled Planters of Groves, and there it says, For whom does merit always increase, both by day and by night? Namely, who are the people going to heaven established in Dhamma and endowed with virtue? Those, the answer is given, who set up a park or a grove, the people who construct a bridge, a place to drink, and a well, those who give a residence. For them, merit always increases both by day and by night. Those are the people going to heaven, established in Dhamma, and dealt with virtue. So, planting trees, suddenly setting up a park or a grove, is suddenly clearly mentioned here as a wholesome deed. The Kudakapata, in its suddenly section 32, speaks of a person who's resting in the shade of a big tree, having rested and suddenly before moving on, shows suddenly his uh, gratitude to this tree by chopping it down. And suddenly that suddenly clearly mm, mm, uh, is suddenly 
brand or or is clearly denounced as someone who is an evil and false friend someone who doesn't know gratitude so first enjoying the shade of that tree enjoying maybe even you know the fruits of that tree and then before you know continuing the journey breaking branches if not even chopping down the entire tree so that's uh, another uh, reference. Now, His Holiness Satna the Dalai Lama in an article published in a, in a book um, mentioned or in a book on mentioned by entitled moral ground he asks or states the following universal responsibility to take action to protect the future of a planet in peril for the survival of humankind the key thing is the sense of universal responsibility that is the real source of strength the real source of happiness if our generation exploits everything available, the trees, the water, and the minerals, without any care for the coming generation or the future, then we are at fault, aren't we? And that's it. So allow me to conclude today's Satna Dhamma talk on the Buddhist perspective of uh, Buddhist perspective on climate change by wishing may we be fully aware of our individual as well as collective or universal responsibility towards certain nature, towards certain the environment. And may our mindfulness practice here at the Forest Refuge help and to purify the mind of negativities, of greed, of hatred, of delusion as much as possible, and then may this lead to the arising of much loving kindness, compassion, karuna, and of much contentment and understanding, and in this way may we contribute to a proper addressing of climate change, be it in a small or larger way during our very existence, and thus may future generations benefit from it. And this is it for now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.